Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, your reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called, you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Thank you, Bryn. Continuing this week in our series on becoming like Jesus and pursuing personal holiness, I'm just going to read our passage uh, just as a preview. Um, most of the time, we are preaching through books of the Bible, and in the almost six years that I've been the pastor of this church, I have gone just from one book to the next to the next, and that is a long reformational tradition that we believe in. We call it expositional or expository preaching. Uh, sometimes, though, it's appropriate to cover topics like we've been doing. We did that with prayer, and we're doing that now in this, in this series, uh, which is not sort of unpacking a whole book of the Bible. And sometimes it may feel like, like cherry-picking verses, but the truth is there are topics in Scripture that are sort of threaded and woven all throughout the Bible that it's appropriate for us at times to sort of focus on a topic and grab those verses from different places and sort of weave them into a message or a series of messages to convey and communicate to us better that particular topic. And that's what we're doing. So this morning, the passage I'm reading, I'm, I'm sort of not going to unpack the, the entire um, exegetical background of it, but it, it sort of is a window into the idea of our passage this morning, that, excuse me, the idea of our message this morning, which is imitating God. So let's read Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people that are here gathered and those watching online. Thank you for Highlands Church. Thank you Lord, that you have numbered us among the saints and that you have called us by your name and sanctified us as your holy people, as Bryn read. We pray now that you open our hearts to the word of God, open our hearts to the truth of God and transform us and sanctify us in it. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when my grandmother died, my mother received her fine china. And I will never forget, on the bottom of the china, it said, made in occupied Japan. And um, my mother went out and got a hutch for it. And I, I think mom still has that china. And uh, if you grew up in a house with fine china, you know, you knew that you only broke it out on special occasions. You know, throughout history, most people ate on dishes made of, of, of wood or pottery. And if you had a little bit of money, maybe your dishes were made of tin or bronze. 
And so China was um, sort of a development in fine dining ware, if you can put it that way, because it was made of porcelain and it had, you know, fancy design on it. Some of you, just a show of hands, I'm just curious, who has China at home? Fine China. It's a lot of people, not everyone. Um, yeah, it kind of adds, at least historically, it adds a touch of class. Now, China is not as prevalent as it used to be because, you know, I mean, most dishware you can buy is, is pretty nice nowadays, and it looks nice, and it feels nice, and it's, it's got you know, nice designs on it. But if you use the China, if you used the China for every common purpose, you soon found that you didn't have any China because it was delicate and it broke easily and you know parents are not prone to give their little kids you know mac and cheese on the china because they don't take care of it and so um, as i said most people they store their china they put it away and they break it out for a special occasion or a special guest but when you think about it, there is nothing particularly special about China. Sure, it's made of porcelain, but so are toilets. <laughs> what really makes China, fine China, special, you'll never look at your China the same way again. <laughs> what really makes it special is the purpose for which it is given. It's set apart for use, a special use, on a special occasion. So what makes China special is that it's set apart. It's just something we put aside to be deployed on special occasions. Holiness works in a very similar way. Things that are relatively ordinary, are set apart for a special purpose. At the creation, God blessed the seventh day of the week and made it holy, because on it he rested from the work that he had done in creation. God made dirt holy when he met with Moses and said, take the sandals off of your feet for where you're standing is holy ground. Now, some would say, you know, if we went back to that specific place in the Middle East where God met with Moses, would it still be holy? It's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. My, my inclination is no. It was holy for that moment. God made a whole mountain holy when he met with Moses and gave the Ten Commandments. God made spaces holy. In the tabernacle, there was a veil separating the inner sanctum, what we call the holy place, and it was a room that housed the Ark of the Covenant. But there was nothing particularly special about that space except that it housed the Ark of the Covenant and it was made holy. It was a space. It was just air, you know, just a room with, you know, curtains and veil, a veil blocking it off. Uh, clothing was holy. God told the priests that ministered in the tabernacle and later the temple to only wear certain kinds of clothing made of linen, and so their garments became holy, although 
before they were assembled and set apart for that specific purpose, there was nothing particularly holy about linen or the breastplate or any of those things. And it's not just objects that God made holy, but God made people holy. God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7 and 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You could say Israel was the fine china among the nations. They weren't superhuman or they had necessarily special intellect more than anyone else or they were they weren't particularly more skilled than anyone but God set them apart to serve him. And because God is holy, anything he employs in his service is also holy. And there's a word for this in the Bible. That word is sanctify. In Joshua, Joshua 3, 5, he says to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So God can sanctify something or, or people, and people can sanctify themselves and sanctify things. God sanctifies us or sets us apart for his holy purposes, and we sanctify ourselves and set us, ourselves apart for holy purposes. To sanctify means to consecrate yourselves or to purify yourselves or to set yourselves apart. God is the one who initially does the sanctifying and sets us apart for his use. He makes us holy first. It is always God who first makes us holy. But we are also commanded in Scripture to set ourselves apart, to sanctify ourselves, to make ourselves holy. It is interesting that we call ourselves sinners, and we get that, right? We, it's part of our reformational heritage that comes from Martin Luther. We are justified in the sight of God while simultaneously being sinners. We're sinners justified by grace through faith. And sometimes I think we overdo it, calling ourselves sinners. And we want to be humble. We don't want to be puffed up in religious pride and say, you know, you're a sinner and I'm a saint. But the language of the New Testament, the language of Scripture, is not the language referring to God's people as sinners, but saints. The word literally means God's holy ones. You can hear in the word a sort of phonetic connection to the word sanctify, can't you? Saints are holy ones. They're God's holy ones who God has sanctified, and it's everywhere in the New Testament. It's everywhere in the New Testament, referring to God's people. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says, contribute to the need of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In Romans, he says, welcome Phoebe in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. To those sanctified in Jesus Christ, he said, called to be saints. 
Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, the saints, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. To all the saints who are at Philippi with the elders and the deacons, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, may he establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. Revelation says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And finally, here is a call for the faithful endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Perhaps we need to recover a theology of Christian identity as saints, not sinners. Maybe that's part of the problem in our struggle. I don't know. As God's holy ones, Maybe this is the hole in our holiness that we don't see ourselves as holy, as saints. Because in God's verdict, his judgment, we're not sinners. We're holy, set apart, sanctified for his service. In God's eyes, we're holy. In its application to people, God's holy ones or saints implies a few things. It implies, number one, assimilation, devotion, in the sense of living a life of service to God, right? And assimilation in the sense of imitating or conforming to and becoming like the God one serves. So, sort of pregnant in the idea of what it means to be a saint is devotion and assimilation, okay? Devotion and assimilation. Devotion in the sense of living a life of, in service to God and assimilation in the sense of imitating and conforming to and becoming like the God one serves. To be holy then is to be like God. That was the passage we read. Paul told the Ephesians, Ephesians 5 and 1. This is our passage again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It says a little something, doesn't it, about what it means to live holy. It's a sacrifice. It's not the focus of my message this morning, but it's there in the text, isn't it? To live holy is a sacrifice. To imitate God is a sacrifice. 
The single most fundamental aspect of a child's development is in how they imitate adults. And if you have children, you know this to be true, don't you? You know that it is not what you say, but what you do that your kids will actually do. You can tell them one thing, but if you do the opposite, they won't do what you say, they will do what you do. Research on imitation, we're talking this morning about imitating God, holiness as imitating God. And research on imitation demonstrates that when a model is provided, patterns of behavior are rapidly acquired in large segments or in their entirety. I used to make fun of grandparents or grandfathers who made goo-goo faces at their grandkids, and now I'm doing them. My granddaughter was born, and within a week, you know, a couple days, I was doing the goo-goo-gaga face. You know, I was, you know, I still do that. And she, at a couple weeks old, saw the shape of my mouth and was trying to copy me. I didn't say, Charlie, I want you to put your lips together. And She saw what I did and she tried to copy me. A pattern of behavior, a model for her. They, your children, they copy your pattern. And what pattern do we have as Christians when it comes to holiness? What model for imitating God do we have? Well, in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, James Packer writes this. In God's school of holiness, our Lord Jesus Christ is teacher. And it is in relationship with him that we progress as students. Why is it in the school of holiness, as in the schools we send our own children, some move ahead faster than others? It is not intelligence or the number of books one reads, but the quality of fellowship with Christ one maintains through life's vicissitudes. Not all Christians grow and mature at the same rate. Isn't that true? Some labor and toil to grow in their faith, to grow in holiness, while others are passive and negligent. This is something instructive for us to recognize, isn't it? When we think about why some are progressing and growing in their holiness and others are not, or maybe why you are not. So the first point I want you to see this morning is that holiness requires effort. It is not automatic. In his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, Kevin DeYoung says, it is the consistent witness of the New Testament that growth and godliness requires exertion on the part of the Christian. In other words, it takes work to be holy. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, didn't you just say a minute ago that God makes us holy just by definition of the fact that we're his children? Yes. But we are also called to be holy to work at our holiness. And so, you know, it's funny, when I hear people say, people who are frustrated about their sin, 
I prayed for God to take it from me, and he didn't. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say that. And, and, and I, I hope I'm not saying it in sort of a condescending way, because I think I've been there at, at one time or another. But maybe you've heard someone say, this is a struggle that I struggle with, and I, I've prayed for God to take it with me, and he didn't. And I just want to say this morning, that is not the way holiness works. Doesn't work that way. You do not just say, Lord, take all of my temptations and sins away from me, and you wake up the next morning, and all of a sudden, you're perfect. Doesn't work that way with sins as a whole. It doesn't work that way with individual sins. You have to work at it. Holiness requires you to kill sin, to work hard, to put it to death to hate your sin and want to kill it. Colossians 3 and 5 commands us to put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 8, 13 says, by the Spirit we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, instructs us to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Each of those verses connote effort. We are not alone in this fight. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit comes alongside of us. The Spirit enables us. The Spirit strengthens us. But we are not passive in the pursuit of holiness. We have to make effort. And God promises when you make effort to fight sin, the Spirit helps you. It provides strength and empowerment to kill it. You know, this was once a robust doctrine in the church that is now sadly on life support. The doctrine of mortification. It is what it sounds like, to mortify, right? The person in the funeral home is the mortician. They handle death. The doctrine of mortification. It was once a very robust doctrine in churches and you Nowadays, don't hear anything about it. The English Puritan John Owen, who wrote more about this than any other person, said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. If I was to like tattoo a phrase on me, I'd, I'd put that on my forearm or something. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And Owen's theology was spot on. He believed in justification by faith, that salvation is entirely of grace, but he recognized that the battle that we have requires effort to focus in on sin and to kill it. 1 Timothy 6.12 urges us to fight the good fight. Again, we're talking about effort, the work it takes. Luke 13 24 exhorts us to strive to enter the narrow gate. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 speaks of running the race with discipline, right? These passages are anything but passive. 
This is anything but a passive kind of faith. Philippians 3, 12 through 14 talks of pressing on and straining forward. 1 Peter 1, 1, 5 flat out commands us to make every effort. And Paul says in Colossians 1, 29, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Notice all of these verses are action-oriented. Again, they are anything but idly sitting by passively, hoping something happens. They contain imperatives. They require effort. And effort is not a four-letter word for the Christian, okay? At least not in the pursuit of holiness. It's what we're called to do in response to God sanctifying us and setting us apart as holy. We're called to pursue it with effort and energy and work and labor and toil and to do everything we can to attain it and chase after it. So here's an application point for you, okay? The Christian life is a spirit-empowered, lifelong struggle against sin and temptation. Don't think it's not. The Christian life is a a spirit-empowered, lifelong struggle against sin and temptation. And you should focus on the word struggle. There is no one who doesn't struggle with sin. There is not a single Christian who doesn't struggle with sin. The holiest Christians who have overcome many sins struggle to overcome. There's nothing easy about it. And that may be the problem, right? When you think that it should come easily. But everything in Scripture tells us that that's not the case. There is struggle, there is effort, labor, toil, work. Are you killing sin? Think about your, your life, the pattern of your behavior in your life. Are you killing sin? Can you say that about yourself? Are you fighting the good fight? Do you make every effort to imitate Christ? Are you running the race with discipline? Or are you sitting on the sidelines just hoping one day something's just going to click? So holiness requires effort, but secondly, I want us to see that holiness requires growth. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when someone is sick, really sick, if you've ever had something like pneumonia, you don't get better immediately. Takes time, doesn't it? And you may have like a cough for weeks or months. It takes time to grow healthier when you're really sick. And the same is true with children. Children do not immediately become adults, but over the course of many years, they grow and they develop and they mature and they understand things better. And they master certain things like coordination 
you know, kids are sort of gangly and goofy and tripping all over themselves. And as they get older, they get better at that, and they know more and they understand more. I was just talking this morning with someone about watching my own kids who are adults now get older, and it feels like every year they get better. <laughs> every year, you know, I'm more proud of them, you know, because they're maturing and they're growing and they're understanding more about life. Well, holiness is that way. You do not become holy instantaneously. Talk about practical holiness. And this requires us to make a distinction between positional holiness, which means our position in God is one of holiness because God has said, these are mine, you are my people, I declare you holy. So there is a kind of positional sanctification, positional holiness, where God names us as his holy people, and then there is the practical holiness of the everyday struggle of growing into Christ-like, godly character every day. And it's important for us to recognize that we grow into that kind of holiness. Does that make sense? We grow into holiness over time, which means you don't sort of lick all of your sins in one fell swoop. I remember, and I've shared this story in the past, a friend of my mother's at the church we were at at the time, the kind of church we were going to, this is about 30 years ago. She was not a church-going person, wasn't a believer. She came to church one Sunday and um, felt the tugging on her heart. There was a sort of an, it was a kind of church that had an altar call, you know. And she came down and got baptized. And after, you know, she felt great and, you know, her hair was wet and she dried off and she got dressed. And after church, she was in the parking lot, and she was a smoker, so she lit up a cigarette like a smoker does. And the pastor came out, snatched that cigarette and that pack of cigarettes out of her hand and crumbled them and threw them and said, you don't need these anymore. <laughs> and she just looked there, looked at them, and never came back. It is this foolish, silly, immature idea that once you become a Christian, all of your struggles immediately disappear. That is not the way holiness works. It happens incrementally, step by step, through a process. Sometimes it can take years to overcome certain things. Now, other, other things can be quite easy. But we grow into it. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop who wrote a book on holiness, called it a lifelong character-changing sanctification. Holiness is a lifelong character-changing sanctification. Takes time. Takes time to grow. Old Christians who have been at it for a long time are still growing. The people you admire and look up to who, ha who have sort of a rock solid faith that you admire and wish you had, they're still growing. They're still struggling. They're still fighting sin. Yes, God has 
sanctified us by his grace and called us holy because in Christ we're his children. And that's what the passage says, right, doesn't it? Be imitators of God as beloved children. And like children, we're commanded to grow into the character of our Father, to grow in holiness. You know, we are never more justified than the moment we believe by faith. The Bible says that. We're saved by grace through faith. We're justified in that moment of true heartfelt belief where we receive the promises of God in that instant and trust in Christ for our salvation. We don't become more justified or less justified. We're justified in that moment, once and for all. God doesn't justify us more and more. It's a once in a lifetime act of God's grace. But sanctification, which also happens by grace the moment we believe, continues. So justification is fixed, it's solid. It doesn't increase, it doesn't decrease. But sanctification, which does happen immediately, has space to grow. It is, an Im- it is imperfect in the sense that, maybe that's not the right word, but it has room for development and growth our whole lives. Justification is fixed. We don't become less or more justified. But sanctification, which happens also immediately by God's grace, has room for us to grow into. It's like a good home for a young family, right? Maybe it's a little bigger than you need, but there's room for you to grow into it as your kids get bigger and you have more children. So we grow into sanctification. We are positionally sanctified the moment we become God's people, but we also grow into sanctification. We become holier as we grow. Our whole lives, it's happening. We are... We are pursuing holiness. At least that's what we're called to. Maybe you've stagnated this morning. Maybe you've stalled out in your sanctification this morning. I hope this is a good reminder for you that we're not called to sit on the sidelines in our holiness. We're not called to just expect that one day it's just going to drop out of the sky or somehow instantaneously, like my mother's friend, who the pastor crumpled her cigarettes and threw in the trash, right? She was thought, thought she was instantaneously delivered from all of her sins. In truth, we may never be totally delivered from sinning. What we're delivered from when God saves us in his son Jesus is the guilt and power of sin to condemn us. What we're called to do every day is to pursue holiness and the fear of God and to trust in Christ ultimately for our salvation. The one who has accomplished perfect holiness and the one who has perfectly conquered sin. Let's pray. Father, let our hearts be convicted this morning by the truth of your word that we need to make every effort to work, to labor, to toil, to pursue holiness as imitators of you, God, our Heavenly Father. And the model and pattern that we have is Christ. We need look no further than Jesus' perfect life of obedience. The things he preached, the things he taught, the things he did 
Help us not to become discouraged. Help us to realize, oh God, that you call us to make every effort, but that holiness is a process whereby we grow. We are sanctified progressively, little by little, over time. So if we find ourselves this morning, any one of us, in a place where we feel defeated, like giving up, hopeless, because somehow we have not fully attained in our minds some place of holiness, help us to start over. By your grace and strength, empowered by the Spirit, which we read this morning, your Spirit promises to be with us, if we mortify our sins, if we put off the old flesh and put on the new person that we are in Christ, to kill, crucify our sins, help us to do it. And Lord, for those of us who do not have a desire, give us a desire to obey. Help it not to simply be something we just try harder to do, but Lord, change our hearts that we want to obey, that we want to pursue holiness, that we want to please you out of a loving heart of submission and obedience and a desire more than anything to be like you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.